0: Just go to Ramp.com slash easy. Ramp.com slash easy. R-A-M-P dot com slash easy. Currents issued by Sutton Bank and Celtic Bank members of DIC. Terms and conditions apply.
1: There are these numbers that I can't get out of my mind about how women are being crushed in the COVID economy. Women have lost over 12 million jobs since February. More than 150,000 of those jobs were in December alone. We've lost jobs in the service sector, the hospitality industry. Ninety percent of civil servants who lost their jobs in December were women. But even these numbers, I don't think they do a good job of quantifying where women are at.
2: Hi, my name is Brittany, and I am a teacher. Hello. Hi. 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 I'm calling in about your episode on the pandemic's effect on women.
1: Um, When we opened up a phone line this week and asked all of you to weigh in on this topic, it was clear, you're hurting.
3: I haven't lost my job. I feel lucky to have it. But I feel like I'm losing my mind. I'm sorry, is this noise too much, his little buzzing?
1: A lot of women talked about feeling squeezed between work and home, especially the moms. I don't sleep, I mean, I probably get like, five hours of sleep a night, but that to me is a solid night of sleep. I mean, you know, we wake up, we get dressed, we eat, you know, get to the school. I start, I come right back, I start work.
2: And I remember seeing a tweet from some punk ass kid, pardon my language. I was like, what are, you know, what are parents complaining about having to take care of their children during the day? Like, this is what you signed up for. And I saw this response and I wish I remembered who
1: had said it. Uh, We didn't sign up to live in a society without schools, you know. Some people have called what's happening right now a she-session, but I hate that language. It feels like an awfully cute way to talk about a brutal grind.
2: So I am going months at a time uh, without having contact with another human adult. Um, It's just me and my three-year-old. (laughs) <laughs> I don't even know what else to say about it. It's just been really 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 hard.
1: And don't get me wrong, there's days where I don't want to get out of bed and I don't want to do it, but it's a mom's a mom and that's their job. You get up, you do it, and you get it done. And for the women who have lost work, their grind is compounded with free-floating anxiety about the future.
3: COVID has changed the way we live our lives. We don't spend any money. We don't have a lot of money to spend. And now I just kind of feel like I don't even know what I would do next. It feels like I'm kind of
2: starting over again. I'm just riding it out until we're all vaccinated, you know, and then our options will open up some,
1: I think, and hope. But then at that point, you know, who's going to hire me? We'll see. Today on the show... If you listen in on enough of these conversations, you can sense patterns in the stories women are telling. Patterns that point to how we got here and why it's going to be hard to fix, even with an infusion of cash from Washington. I'm Mary Harris. You're listening to What Next? Stick with us. This episode is brought to you by Discover. Someone else who's listening to how women are doing during the COVID crisis is a sociologist named Jess Calarco. She's been following hundreds of mothers since they were pregnant back in 2018. She checks in with them every few weeks. So she's been able to watch in real time as the coronavirus upends their home lives and their finances. Her work reveals the stories behind those monthly jobs numbers. And Jess says... The situation women find themselves in right now, it's got a simple cause. It's
4: a matter of who we prioritize. On average, men have gained jobs in December, as opposed to women who have disproportionately continued to lose jobs. And I think it speaks to as we have, as this pandemic has continued, we have focused on reopening the economy to the extent that that will get men and especially relatively affluent white men back to work making sure that we are reopening f- factories, for example, manufacturing, as opposed to service sector industries. We're certainly not doing much to to, to support many of the small businesses um, that often do employ women, especially in the service sector. Jobs like hairdressers uh, jo- and, and stylists, jobs like Uh, hotel cleaners, uh, jobs like food service workers. uh, And those are disproportionately done by women and especially low-income women of color. That's what a lot of the jobs numbers that we see publicized are talking about. Those women who are being pushed into unemployment because of the way that the pandemic has affected what types of labor are safest and that people are utilizing. I think what those numbers often underplay, though, are A lot of other patterns that are simultaneously happening in the economy and that are also making things much more difficult for women in the workforce. Like what? For example, mothers who are effectively being pushed out of the workforce because they now have to combine or find some way to provide full-time care or instruction Uh, for their children while also keeping their jobs. And that the tensions around that is is pushing many women to decide to leave the workforce. That they could have had a job or could have kept their job, but the demands of trying to do both, of trying to be both a full-time caregiver for their children and sometimes for elderly relatives as well, in addition to being a full-time worker or even a part-time worker, is is sometimes just too much to handle.
1: So what you seem to be saying is like there's one layer of job loss happening, and then underneath it, there's like a whole other layer that we're paying attention to, but it doesn't come across in those brutal numbers every month.
4: Exactly. Because of the way that we calculate unemployment, when we calculate unemployment statistics, we focus on people who are not in the workforce, but are actively looking for work. And so many of these women that are being pushed out of the workforce, not because their jobs have gone away, but because they can no longer do their jobs, they're not looking for work right now because they can't look for work right now. And so those mothers aren't counted in the unemployment statistics in the same way.
1: It sounds like you're saying it's even worse than we think it is.
4: I would say yes. And because even on top of those mothers who've been pushed out of the workforce, there's also the women who are finding ways to continue working either full-time or part-time while providing all of that extra care at home. And even though those women might still be employed, they're certainly facing setbacks in their careers, in their ability to compete with co-workers who don't have the same caregiving responsibilities and who may be able to take on that extra work assignment or work the full 40 or 50 or 60 hours a week to get things done and look like the ideal worker that many uh, women and especially mothers with disproportionate care responsibilities are not able to put in that time right now. And the mothers that I've talked to in some of the interviews that we've done talk about feeling like failures as both workers and as mothers. They're saying, yes, I'm still employed, but I can't do my job well and I can't be the kind of mother that I want to be. So I just feel like a failure all the time.
1: I'm curious how your study, because you're talking to like more than 100 women pretty regularly. I'm wondering how you'd characterize the way the women you're talking to changing, like from the spring until now, do you feel like there's more desperation now? Do you feel like there's more, people are more resigned now? How would you characterize like sort of a more global change in the women you talk to? It depends a little bit on mother's resources. The moms just speaks to who work in the service industry, are mostly low income. Seeing their jobs disappear in the pandemic was scary. And for a lot of them, When federal support ran out in July, things got rough.
4: I talked to one mom, an unemployed, unpartnered mother who was struggling financially. I mean, she was trying to use her WIC uh, benefits to get diapers and wipes for her son, but the, the store was regularly out of them. And so she was going to food pantries and to local churches trying to find diapers and trying to find wipes and didn't have extra money to be able to buy those with. She couldn't just go on Amazon and buy those things for her family and feeling much more stressed economically, um, worrying about making ends meet for her family, worrying about putting food on the table, and deeply stressed. Most of the white collar moms in Jess's study were
1: spared this kind of financial anxiety. But when schools and daycares closed, nearly all of them started shouldering a disproportionate share of the childcare burden.
4: And even if the women didn't lose their jobs, the pandemic made it hard to keep working. One mom that I talked to, she was a a mental health counselor. And so when the pandemic hit, she was transitioning to doing telehealth appointments. And ironically, at the time, her husband was actually taking some time off between ending a previous job and starting a new job. He had like eight weeks of of paid time off that he could use from his previous job. And so they said, hey, this is perfect. He can stay home. He can watch their toddler full time while mom is working from home um, as a telehealth counselor. What quickly happened, though, uh, was that dad had never been a full-time care provider before. He'd actually spent relatively little time caring for their young daughter. And so it quickly devolved into him constantly interrupting mom during the workday, trying to kind of figure out, hey, where are the diapers? What am I supposed to do with her next? He would regularly let her daughter sort of wander in during her telehealth appointments, uh, in some cases when she was dealing with patients who were grappling with suicidal ideation or dealing with other kinds of traumatic situations and she became oh god i'm so mad for this mom right now oh my gosh and and i was and she was mad too she she described how she would come out after her appointments and just yell at her husband like this is completely inappropriate you can't do this and she's one of those moms who would said you know what i like once he goes back to work i think i'm done like i just i can't do this anymore that the stress of being a counselor during the pandemic but then also the stress of having to deal with still being the primary parent even when her husband has the time to be the full-time caregiver, was just too much. And she just decided that it wasn't worth it to to stay in the workforce.
1: God, and that could just follow her for the rest of her life. Like, it's losing her income stream and losing a year of work. And, I mean, we have real data on what that can do to your
4: prospects for the future, right? Exactly. Once women leave the workforce, even if they only intend it temporarily, it becomes much less likely that they will come back to their jobs in the future. And even if they do, they're set back on their career ladder. They're not going to be as competitive for promotions. They're not going to be as competitive for higher wages. uh, And that sets back their their long-term earning potential then as well.
1: I wonder if you see a decision like that that seems very individual and does make a kind of sense, but you see it from a different perspective of you know, the whole reason the mom is going to make that decision is because of the incentive
4: structure all around her. Exactly. I'm thinking about things like the gender pay gap, where we know that most women, if they're in different gender partnerships, make less than their, their men partners. And so that leads to very, quote unquote, logical decisions in terms of, whose job should be sacrificed when push comes to shove and you have to uh, give up someone's work time in order to help the first grader with online learning or help the toddler get down for naps or feed the baby. Yeah. I mean, there's something you were quoted as saying that really stuck with me.
1: You said, in the U.S., most of us aren't taught to use our sociological imaginations. I just loved that idea. You were talking about how a lot of us see the choices we're making as individual and, you know, see the incentives that are there. But we don't think about how the incentives got there in the first place. What kind of structures are already in place that may be hemming in our free choice?
4: Can you explain that a little bit more sort of in the in the context of what you're seeing? Sure. So, I mean, the sociological imagination is a concept from sociologist C. Wright Mills, uh, which is getting at this idea that, that people's lives are shaped by social forces that we're not always fully aware of and that we often take for granted because we're in them and because we are so in them that we see them as normal. And so a sociological imagination is about seeing those social forces, seeing that our lives and our outcomes and other people's lives and outcomes are shaped not only by our individual choices, but by these larger forces things like capitalism and racism and sexism and kind of the the incentives that those systems create that then provide the context in which we can actually make choices and and oftentimes put constraints around uh, or different incentives on the kinds of choices that we can actually make and so certainly in the case of the pandemic and, and women's employment and and the decisions that couples are making about how to balance the added caregiving responsibilities that, that come with the pandemic, it's so easy for women especially to blame themselves and the rhetoric that exists in our society, the sort of emphasis on our, our sort of up-by-your-bootstrap self-help book culture uh, that tells women especially that if they just follow this 17-step plan, they can fix their relationships or have it all in their careers or be happy or have happy kids. Um, and what that ignores is, is the, the huge structural forces that often limit people's ability um, to to have it all and and to be successful um, and blames women and leaves women blaming themselves uh, when they're not able to, to have those kinds of outcomes that they desire.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think what's interesting about what you're saying is that I think in a lot of what I've read about women and the economy and COVID, what I've read sort of encourages us to think about the women who are choosing to leave the workforce as pretty separate from the women who are being forced out of the workforce. And what happens when you look at it through the lens you're talking about is you realize that those two kinds of women who, yes, have very different financial circumstances are actually tied together together and are making
4: decisions or having decisions forced on them for some of the same reasons. Absolutely. And I think it's all linked to the devaluing of labor that we see as feminine labor, especially caregiving labor. In this country, we do not, by kind of policy, pay women to stay home after childbirth um many other countries do provide or ensure paid leave uh, for women following childbirth in the us we that the most we do for women at least on a broad policy level is to guarantee unpaid leave and that doesn't even apply to all women and so that that's one example of a direct devaluing of kind of feminized caregiving labor. But that extends to other parts of the economy as well. I mean, childcare workers, for example, are among the lowest paid workers in our economy, despite the fact that the work they do allows so many other people in the workforce to be able to stay employed and to make more money than those childcare workers are able to earn for themselves. Teachers are another great example. And certainly research shows that as a prof- as any profession becomes uh, primarily women, the income relative to other similar professions goes down. And that's happened to a number of different types of jobs uh, in, in our economy throughout history. And, and it speaks directly to this idea that we systematically devalue women's labor, whether that's labor that happens in the home or labor that happens in the workforce. And so when we think about the kinds of jobs that have been lost and our refusal to pay those workers to, to continue working or pay those kinds of employers to keep their workers having enough salary to get by, that's a devaluing of that labor. That's saying that labor isn't worth enough. And similarly, when we say that women are being pushed out of the workforce because they can't simultaneously care for their children and be these ideal workers, we're devaluing the cost of that labor, of providing child care, of providing full-time care for, for children or for elderly family members or sick family members in a way that is disproportionately impacting women. When we come back... There are ways to make the economy work for women.
1: Jess just isn't sure the U.S. is ready for them.
3: Our bodies come in different shapes and sizes, so doesn't it make sense that our weight loss plans should too? That's the beauty of Noom. They build a personal plan that factors in dietary restrictions, medical issues, and other personal needs so your plan works for you.
1: Looking at the circumstances of women in the workforce today, I think a lot about this big experiment we tried in this country to make their lives better. This was back in World War II, when the U.S. government provided paid childcare that allowed women to work. It was a short-lived program put in place to allow men to leave the workforce and go fight. It was also a big, if brief, restructuring of the social safety net, But Jess Calarco, she is not optimistic that U.S. policymakers are ready to try anything this bold again, just because the pandemic has scrambled our lives. She looks at the Biden administration's
4: plans and says they're too meager. I think we are in a moment where the possibility for a massive restructuring of our social safety net is possible. But I'm not convinced that it will actually come to fruition. Why not? When push comes to shove, we have almost always in our history chosen to prioritize the employment of men and especially white men uh, over women's employment. As you were saying, in the wake of World War II, I mean, unlike in Europe, where they really needed everyone to stay in the workforce um, and where they really needed women to continue working um, because of the the destruction to the economy and the destruction to their society, um, they provided all of these safety net programs, paid maternity leave, paid child or affordable child care that made it possible for women to stay in the workforce. Whereas here, we didn't need women working for the economy. And so we actively pushed women back home. And, And arguably, it's not entirely clear that we need the the full employment that we had before, at least from the perspective of policymakers. And so I'm very worried that because of the indicators that we use to determine the health of our nation's economy, then that tells us that we don't actually need women in the workforce and that we don't actually need to invest in the kinds of policies that would make it possible uh, for women to return to jobs that they've lost during the pandemic. And I'm concerned that because of the likely pushback in our highly polarized system, the policies that we end up with will be half measures that some in our legislature can point to as successes that ultimately fail to provide the kind of support uh, that women especially actually need.
1: Yeah. I mean, one of the things you said really early on was that you were finding when you spoke to women during the pandemic, they were often blaming themselves for whatever kinds of binds they were finding themselves in. Like, I'm not the best worker. I'm not the best mom right now. And of course, you can't blame yourself for a pandemic. But <laughs> it's what we do, and it's what we've been taught to do. And you make this point that like that's how these cultural norms survive in that they've, they've become so ingrained in how women think of themselves that they can't think their way out of them. And it seems like these cultural biases it's just very hard to put a policy in place that will shift them.
4: Yeah, and I mean I think then we have to think about the structure of incentives like we've been talking about and that sometimes you can change culture by changing incentives. And so if you can provide full-time when we provide affordable child care, for example, women are much more likely to go back to work, um, th- th- that women's workforce participation increases substantially. So essentially, when we make it lower cost for women to, to go back to work, um, then that becomes an example. In terms of men, the more that we can make sure that things like child care worker jobs and teachers jobs are paid at a level that it's not just considered women's work because those women are expected to have a husband who can provide a salary that they could actually live on, but that men would be interested in doing those jobs as well. And the more that we can reduce the stigma around men doing care work, I think those things have to go along with those kinds of pushes to make sure that this isn't just reinforcing the kinds of unequal divisions of labor that we see in our society right now. The one piece of this that I am hopeful about is that there are these conversations like this one that are happening and that there is this seemingly growing recognition among women that this problem is much bigger than their individual lives. Because I think one of the key problems is that because our society is so deeply unequal economically and racially, that the women who have the most power and resources to to actually push for change have the least incentive to do so because of how they benefit from the status quo, that even if they're hurting right now, they're hurting far less than many others. And that there's often the fear that if they work towards social safety net programs or changes in policy that would benefit others, it would benefit others more than themselves or might set them back, relatively speaking, to other people. And so I think the more that we can kind of inspire collective rage and push women not only to feel angry for themselves, but for other women, and especially for other women who may be facing more hardship than themselves. I think that's where there's there's real hope for the possibility of change.
1: Jess Calarco, thank
4: you so much for talking. Thank you so much for having me.
1: Jess Calarco is a professor of sociology at Indiana University. And that is the show. What Next is produced by Elena Schwartz, Mary Wilson, Davis Land, and Danielle Hewitt. Allison Benedict and Alicia Montgomery make sure the trains run on time around here. And I'm Mary Harris. Stay tuned to this feed tomorrow. Our Friday show, What Next TBD, with Lizzie O'Leary, is going to be waiting for you. And I will be right back here to meet you on Monday.